From the team at CTS, this is the Train Ride Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. The best foundation for a high-performing endurance athlete starts with a well-developed base. Many would probably agree with that statement, but there's still questions and confusions around this topic, like what is base training? How do I build it? And when do I know when to move on from base training to the next phase? Today, I sit down with Coach Coley Moore of Empirical Cycling, who has coached and consulted for world champions, world tour teams, multiple national champions, masters athletes, and still loves to mix it up himself on the bike a little bit. He's also part of the WKO5 Future Works group that helps develop and test new advanced cycling analytics. In this episode, I think you'll learn the answers to the questions above, as well as some other fun physiological aspects that you never even thought about. Most importantly, you'll learn to train right and to do it with confidence. So with that, let's meet our guest and get learning. Coley, welcome to the show. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I gave a brief overview of your coaching and professional life in our intro, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more of who Coley is? Um, well, I'm, uh, you know, obviously head coach of empirical cycling and, uh, you know, you and I are part of the WKO five, uh, future works group. Um, but you know, I have, uh, I have a degree in biology. I studied biochemistry and systems phys and, uh, you know, way back in the day I was actually, um, uh, I got a degree in audio engineering. I graduated 2004 from the Higher School of Music and, uh, you know, uh, striving for audio and coaching excellence as always. <laughs> well, you've already, you've already coached me into audio excellence with my new microphone setup this morning. So I, uh, uh, do appreciate that. Oh, <laughs> we're, we're already, yeah. We're already learning. Um, where are you, where are you coming from today? Where, where are you at? I am in Vermont right now. Beautiful. So I uh, moved, moved out of Boston and uh, moved up here to the sticks and uh, wanted a, <laughs> something a little more quiet, no traffic. My blood pressure is as low as it's ever been, man. I love hearing that. I love hearing that. What's uh, You guys got clobbered by the latest snow as we were recording this here in January? Yeah, man. Brutal quarter inch out there today. Whew, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, down in DC, we had like eight inches on the ground. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I saw the traffic jam. I hope you weren't caught in that. No, we were, we were hunkered, hunkered down, hunkered down. So yeah, well, this is great. Um, you know, as, as our listeners can probably hear, we've, we've got another nerdy coach, uh, with us to talk about all the, all the geeky, geeky stuff of endurance training in particular base training. So, um, I can't wait to learn and I can't wait for our listeners to learn more. So I'd say, let's just go right into the meat and potatoes, Goalie. Let's do this. All right. So first, just to start um, with a kind of a, a basis of where we're going with this, uh, I want to know what is base training? What's Coley's definition of base training? Uh, so my definition of base training is really all training that leaves a positive long-term impact. Um, and I know typically most people think about base training as, you know, the long, slow endurance miles that you do in the fall and winter or whatever. Um 
you know, but to me, it's anything that will improve you in the long term. Like, for instance, uh, if we do FTP and VO2 max training for an athlete uh, during the course of a year, when, um, you know, when we get to training the next year, hopefully, instead of starting from, let's say, 200 watt FTP, they're up at like 230 or 240. And that's a better place to start because, you know, anything that impacts you positively in the long term, you know, there it is. Your base is higher now. It's not 200 watts, it's 230. So that's that's great. But, you know, for the purposes of what we're doing today, obviously, um, we're going to be talking about the, uh, you know, the the general prep phase of uh, cycling training and endurance training, because uh, that's most people's typical uh, understanding of base training. Totally. Yeah. And when we're talking about this base training aspect, I mean, can we get some grounding of what an intensity would be with that, uh, either we can talk specifics of like say training peaks terminology or as general as a rate of perceived effort, what type of intensity are we talking about in base? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny cause, um, I think a lot of people, uh, I know this is me projecting onto the listeners. So, sorry, listeners, yeah, um, away. But I, I think a lot of people, mostly because I, you know, spend some time on the internet, like everybody does, seem to think that, um, you know, for better or for worse, um, right? Seem to think that it's, you know, X percentage of FTP, or it's, you know, something like that, or it's like a heart rate, or something like that. And to me, it's I always assign endurance riding, um, and uh, you know, like zone two type stuff as an intensity. Uh, by RPE, not as a percentage of FTP, because, you know, if you think about FTP as being, or uh, sorry, FTP as like endurance range being something like, um, you know, 60 to 75% of FTP or something like that. Um, I've actually seen people's LT1 be lower than that 50 to 55% of FTP. And so um, if you tell somebody to ride at 70% of FTP, when their LT1 is actually 60%, um, now they're going to accumulate a lot more fatigue and that's not going to be as effective training. And actually you can overtrain by doing something like that. So I always think about it in terms of like RPE. So I'll typically assign, uh, an endurance training ride as a, uh, as like a four to five out of 10 RPE, like in my RPE range of five is LT one, but, um, you know, you can, um, you can assign that as a four as well. I think a lot of people do that too. Um, but I'll usually go as low as a three RPE for an endurance ride. But um, occasionally, I know somebody's really tired. I'll say two to four. <laughs> Just yeah. keep it super chill. Um, and you still get plenty of adaptation like that. Yeah, uh, completely agree. And for any any listeners that are like, whoa, those are a lot of numbers. What are we talking about here? Uh, the RPE scale that, he, that Coley and I are talking about is scale of one to 10. Really, really simple. One is super hanging out 10 is you're going max effort. I'm going to barf. Yeah. So when, when Coley's talking anywhere between three and five or two and four, um, it's pretty light, right? Uh, yeah, it is fairly light. Um, so I, I usually think that light to medium, let's put yeah, light to medium. So I think a good descriptor of this, um, you know, cause I know a lot of, uh, exercise physiologists think about, um, you know, uh, you know, the typical, like, you know, Sam, I don't even use that much. I, I always forget the terminology. It's like the heavy, the the moderate, the heavy into the severe exercise domains. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think about it like that quite so much because I think about it as what is it that I like to feel while I'm doing an endurance ride? Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
you can actually feel out your LT1, your top of your real endurance range pretty easily, as long as you feel like you're, you feel like you're working, but it's easy. And so, you know, that kind of oxymoron, like you're working, but it's easy is, um, a really good descriptor I find for most people. Um, and I've tried other descriptors too. Like you ride at what you feel like you can do for eight hours, but if you're training a world tour pro, they can go over LT1 for you know, 10 hours or 12 hours. Forever, so that's, yeah. that's not a good descriptor either, but, yeah. um, you can also think about it like the amount of fatigue you have when you get home. So if you get back mm-hmm. from, uh, if you're used to doing a three or a four hour endurance ride, you want to get to the end of that feeling like you could probably do a five minute max effort and maybe only lose 10 Watts, or you just, you just feel really good. You feel like you barely a little tired, a little more tired than when you left. Yeah. And and I think it's really important to talk about the feel like that with your athletes as we're talking about right now, because connecting say a a, a number, say with like power or heart rate to the, the goal of the workout is in super important long-term for the, say the health of the athlete or the quality of the training. And that feel when it comes to something abstract and has like, say a wide zone, like a zone two um, endurance um, training zone, like on training peaks, um, that feel is super important, super important. So the athlete is out there and they're training and they have the confidence of like, okay, am I feeling like a four or five today? Yeah. Okay. This feeling like four or five and you're, yeah. you're self-checking as you go. And I always tell people to let the Watts come to you. Don't go looking for the Watts. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause a lot of people will start too hard. And if you start too hard, um, you can actually be a little over LT one before you really warm up. And totally. that's, going to put you a little bit on the back foot for the rest of your ride. So, you know, even if you start out at 30 or 40% FTP, as long as it feels good, just keep going and you'll warm up as you go. And as long as you negative split it kind of like that, or even if it just stays low like that, you you finish the ride feeling good. I consider it a success. Yeah. Agreed. And kind of last, last little bit here, when I, when I prescribe it to you, I'll oftentimes just say, go ride your bike. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah. And then if there's, if you did anything wrong, we'll just correct it afterwards and you get another chance tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we talked about the numbers. We talked about like some, um, general, general terminology. Uh, what are you Coley? What are you looking at uh, for, say after the fact, um, when one of your athletes does a, a base training zone two ride? What kind of numbers, what kind of sensations, what type of comments are you looking for after this ride? Most importantly, I'm looking for, well, I'm looking for power evidence that somebody didn't go too hard or they didn't start too hard and then trail off. Um, and I'm looking at their comments. You know, if they say felt good and I look at the the power and the heart rate and the terrain and the whatever and the temperature and I think, okay, this looks good. Great. Let's, uh, you know... <laughs> Check mark A plus. Move on to tomorrow. Um, yeah. But uh, when I'm looking at it in terms of long term tracking, like what adaptations are we getting? Are we getting the right ones that we want? I'm looking for over time, not just in a ride. I'm looking for less heart rate decoupling, um, efficiency factor trending up, maybe a percentage of FTP trending up, um, stuff like that. What do you mean by heart rate decoupling? So as you ride um, at a steady RPE, for most people that you know means power is going up a little bit or power is pretty flat, um, you watch your heart rate relative to the power. So let's say in the first hour you have a um, you're doing 100 watts and your heart rate's 100 BPM, uh, but in 
the last hour, hour five, let's say your power is still 100 watts, but your heart rate is 110 BPM, you have achieved some heart rate decoupling. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, the heart rate's kicking up over time, um, even though the power is not that different. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Um, and would you say that for a base ride like this, is is it from a pacing standpoint, is it better to just be even the entire time? Is it better to start hard and then kind of like come down or is it better to start a little easier and maybe you come up a little harder toward the end? Um, always start low, always start low. Um, you know, I've got very experienced athletes on my roster who can, who are fully warmed up in about 10 or 15 minutes. They start easy and then they're just dead flat for the rest of the ride. Um, others, you know, if you're really tired, then, you know, sometimes it can take people an hour or two to really warm up. And sometimes that's, you know, the pedaling and, you know, the hormonal, the systemic changes that we get, but also sometimes it's just your riding and your eating. And that can help your body kind of feel a little more awake too, especially if you're kind of at a deficit from a hard race or a hard workout the day before. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And then when you're, when you're actually analyzing the, the, the power file itself, are you looking at, um, are you looking at average power time and zone kilojoules? What, what do you, what are some of the metrics or numbers that you're looking at? Um, yeah, I usually track average power over time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have, a a method to filter out the kind of types of endurance rides that I, uh, typically give people. And I'll just, I'll track those over time. Um, uh, I'll also track, um, you know, time and zone for some people who are like, you know, a little more time crunched or we're really looking for that extra, like one or 2%, um, in which case, you know, time and zone, or at least time pedaling, I would say would be, uh, something that you want to achieve, uh, maximally. So if you've only got four or five hours for an endurance ride on a Sunday, but you and your coach actually think that you need to increase it to six or seven hours to find further improvements, um, and you don't have those extra couple hours, then you're going to want to make sure that every pedal stroke on that ride counts. How would you, how would you do that? Would you go to the hills would you stay on the flats? Would you go? I advise people you? to stay on the flats, especially my clients in Colorado who love to like go into the foothills and climb. For sure. Um, you know, like that's a lot of descending time. And my clients in Europe too is the same thing. I'll, I'll say, you know, instead of going into the mountains, why don't you just ride around Lake Geneva or something like that? Because it's pretty flat. It's a little rolly. It's, uh, and you get some great scenery too. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, in the Colorado plateau, it's like go out to the plateau, go east you know, go South, go, go North. Don't, don't go West. So if our listeners are like, well, Coley, I like, I prefer Hills and I, don't you get a good workout on the Hills? Like, why would I not go to the Hills if I want to get the most out of it? Um, if you can pace it evenly on the Hills, that's great. Go for it. Uh, it's when you start to push too hard on the Hills and then you relax on the descents, then it becomes more of like a tempo ride. And while that can achieve similar or even a little better adaptations in a shorter amount of time, you know, the typical time intensity uh, trade-off for time crunch people, um, you can acquire a lot of fatigue doing something like that. And so you have to measure that kind of dose a little more carefully. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and you mentioned RPMs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going uphill, you then go downhill. Mm-hmm. Do most people pedal downhill or not? Uh, you know, it depends on the speed and their gearing and, you know, if there's traffic or if there's corners, uh, you know, there's all kinds of factors. Um, so usually I just look at coasting time. Yep. 
Um, especially if somebody's kind of tired and we're going to get some stuff, you know, in the zone one of the, uh, Coggin zones. Um, in, in which case, you know, I don't look at that so much cause I know somebody's tired. There's, you know, that yeah. contextual yeah. aspect of everything. Um, but you know, I've got athletes who can nail seven hours in zone two and, you know, the 20, 30 minutes in zone one and barely anything else. So, yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing's possible, but it's not, you know, that's like the textbook kind of ride, not typical. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't have this necessarily on our outline, but what does happen when you, when you're looking at somebody who, you know, maybe does a hilly rolly ride versus the flat ride versus inside, like what mm-hmm. goes on with the RPM distribution and is it bad, good, neutral? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, and I don't think there's a great answer on this. I know a lot of people debate cadence, high cadence, low cadence, um, you know, high force, inertia, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I think uh, for most people, just doing the ride is going to be the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to, you know, your high performance athletes, people who are getting paid to ride a bike, then we look at it and say, okay, does do we think this is better for you? Do we think this is better for you? And a lot of it comes down to, athlete feedback. Um, you know, cause you know, in, 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 I think a lot of people these days are thinking about, uh, motor unit recruitment when it comes to low cadence. Um, and so are your listeners familiar with that, by the way? I'd say some are, and some would be like, what did he just say? <laughs> so, um, so, uh, this is something that relates to how we produce gradations in force. Um, so how the same muscle when it contracts can produce less force and more force because a, mu- a muscle fiber is all or nothing. It either is contracting or it's not, right. uh, it's, it's very binary. Um, and so we have motor units that are very small that have uh, a nerve comes in and it enervates just a, sp- or it turns on a small number of muscle fibers. And then as we think, okay, I need to produce more force, the signal to the muscle gets higher and higher. And so we contract higher and higher motor units that require a little more mental effort to contract and they all together produce more force. And so you go from the base level to all the way up to max if you're trying to sprint or do a, you know, one rep max deadlift or something like that. And so, you know, when it comes to pedaling and cadence and motor unit recruitment, you know, a lot of people are thinking, okay, if you contract, um, if you contract slower, if you have a lower RPM, you're going to get into larger motor units. And so you can aerobically train them, right? I mean, yeah, but you can also do threshold work to train them as well. Um, and so, you know, there's not a great answer with this kind of stuff because most of the adaptations, um, that we're looking for when we do, base rides are going to happen whether we recruit large motor units or smaller motor units. And so it depends on how you want to distribute. Uh, if you want to really get into the weeds with this kind of stuff, it depends on how you want to distribute the adaptation load through the muscle fibers, um, which is um, a, a nascent science at best, um, in my opinion, at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd agree with you. And, and therefore kind of sticking with uh, intensity zone or a perceived effort is a great way to keep it simple for sure. Yeah. And especially if, um, you know, somebody's prone to injury or they've got knee problems, you know, artificially lowering or raising the cadence can cause problems. And some people, you know, can't really hold 120 RPM. Some people can hold 170 RPM. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, not that, not that long, but they can <laughs> a yeah. little bit. 
So last kind of topic on say the RPMs and in, in distribution um, of zones, because this is kind of a hot topic a little bit out there is say you got an athlete, um, uh, intermediate level athlete, and they got a three hour, three to three and a half hour, uh, zone two base ride and they do it inside and then they do one outside. Does one count for more than the other since generally speaking, you get more pedal strokes inside and less coasting versus that outside? Or do you manipulate time on that? Or how would you handle that question? Um, you know, honestly, for me, the priority comes down to what's easier for the athlete. Because if you're going to introduce a bunch of stress, if you're like, oh, man, I got to get outside. I can't be on the trainer because outside's better. Um or vice versa, whatever's causing, but you hate riding the trainer for instance. So uh, whatever causes the least amount of stress for the athlete, I think is probably going to be the best option, especially for uh, an intermediate type rider or somebody like, like a very average uh, Joe Jane or, or whoever um, not causing stress is actually by number one goal, making it enjoyable. And, um, you know, then if they get really, really serious about it at some point and they're willing to, you know, look for these trade-offs. Uh, we'll talk about it, but for the most part, I'd say it's probably one of the last things on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. Um, cause yeah, it comes down to actually doing the work and not counting, you know, I, I don't know, 10, extra pedal strokes <laughs> yeah. or something like that. And when somebody's inside for a three, four hour trainer ride, I tell them to get off and, you know, <laughs> go to the toilet, go get some water, you know, go pet the dog, um, go get the door, go get that Amazon package. Like, you know, there's get off your bike the same way <laughs> that, cause otherwise, you know, it's very static and it, yeah. it's, you know, most people don't have a good time riding for five hours straight mm-hmm. on the, on a trainer. Yeah. So do the work, keep it fun, change it up just like you normally would. Totally. Yeah. All right. So let's get into, uh, let's get into energy systems. It's something that I've talked about on the episode before. And if I'm organized with Corey, we'll throw up the, um, the classic physiology three energy zone, uh, slide for our YouTube, uh, watchers slash listeners, but Coley, can you go through the three common energy systems and we'll talk about the one that we will be training most here in, in base training. And, and I want you to kind of give a a couple flares on that, uh, that third system as well. Oh yeah. So, um, so what we're looking at here, um, is we've got free ATP, uh, we've got the phosphogen system. Well, everything's really phosphogen. So creatine Mm -hmm. phosphate system, um, glycolysis and oxidative phosphorylation. So, um, you know, none of this, it, it's funny cause, um, I, I, I'm guilty of this as anybody, but you know, technically speaking, if we want to get technical and I, I do consider myself, uh, more of an expert in metabolism than most, uh, people trained in exercise physiology, sorry to do my own horn a little bit, but I, I did study under uh, Hans Kornberg in biochemistry. So, um, you know, there were like a hundred of us, but still I got to interact with him and, you know, office hours and email with him. And he was incredibly informative. Um, so just, just a quick side note here. We're going to go into the deep weeds a little bit on this since Coley is an expert and he's, I mean, and if you love this, go listen to his podcast, um, empirical cycling podcast. He goes crazy with this stuff. I actually super love it. I think that some listeners would be like, what, what are you talking about with carbon 
oxygen bonds and why this relates to <laughs> lipid <laughs> utilization and all this kind of stuff. So like, and I'm not that much of an expert. I am a, I, I've got a background in chemistry, but nothing like, um, nothing like Mr. Biology and, and, um, and, uh, Coley Moore over here. So, okay, let's get back to the three energy systems and talking about how this will eventually apply to our base training. Yeah. So, um, so we've got, uh, ATP, which is, you know, the energy currency of the cell. I think everybody's pretty familiar with that. Um, then we have the creatine phosphate system and we have the glycolytic energy system. And then we have here what's labeled as oxidative phosphorylation. So when it comes to substrate use, um, you know, creatine phosphate, uh, carbohydrates or fats, technically speaking, all of it is actually anaerobic. Um, there is, uh, you know, oxidation and reduction of substrates while we are going through these pathways, but oxygen doesn't get involved until we actually have a, um, a, uh, an electron and proton, uh, currency exchange system, if you will, in the form of NADH and FADH2. And so those transport electrons and protons into the electron transport chain, which is separate from, um, the Krebs cycle and from glycolysis and from the phosphocreatine system. And so when we think about what is actually oxidative, it's all of those uh, reducing equivalents, as we call NADH and FADH2. Um, those are what bring everything to the oxidative system of um, uh, the electron transport chain, and which is how we aerobically make ATP, which is, you know, this is this separated uh, from, you know, breaking down fats and breaking down carbohydrates and breaking down phosphocreatine. So, um, so technically all of it is really anaerobic, you know, and so when we look at what is, you know, what is our aerobic energy system that we're trying to develop, we're actually trying to develop, um, being able to provide substrate for the electron transport chain sustainably um, in terms of having more mitochondrial density and being able to deliver more oxygen and have, um, you know, more capillary density and all, all this kind of stuff helps in the long term. But, you know, our three energy systems, um, as, um, you know, as you put here in our notes file is mm -hmm. ATP glycolytic and aerobic. And, <laughs> and I, I wrote down like, none of these are actually aerobic. Yeah. So, um, why, so why do we call it the aerobic system? Why, why is that in, embedded into human physiology? Uh, you know, that's a good question. It's, I think it's sort of like, um, because, well, first of all, it's simpler to communicate to people. Yeah. So, if, you know, if I were going to call myself an educator, which I don't think I am, I think my podcast is more of an advertisement for my coaching services than uh, educational, <laughs> but I hope it's educational at some points. Um, I think if you're going to educate somebody about these things, you want to say mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Great. Okay. And so the Krebs cycle is responsible for generating the vast majority of reducing equivalents for aerobic phosphorylation and generation of ATP. Um, and so you can simplify it, but is that the technically most correct thing? Like everybody out there is listening. Think about what you're an expert in and how you would explain the most technical things that you know to somebody like me who knows basically nothing about anything except this. <laughs> <laughs> so That's I, fair. That's fair. Yeah. And so I'd say, you know, for, for the deeper dive, um, I, I would encourage listeners to check out his podcast. It's episode number 29, Why Fat Oxidation is anaerobic. 
So go there if you want the very nitty gritty details, but I do think it's important to bring up and talk about here because, um, you know, things that we in general have learned and and that is in some of the, um, that is in the literature of our, our training literature. Um, it's not hundred percent all the way there, but it is formulated to make it a little bit more digestible. So to kind of bring this thing back, uh, Coley, when we are doing our, what we call our, what I framed up this conversation to be base training, how are we manipulating these three energy systems and why is it important? Like what's going on here? Yeah. Well, um, you know, we actually haven't gotten to this in the, uh, in the podcast yet, but we will very soon. Um, cause right now we're doing uh, a series on energy metabolism, um, or just energy, metab- just, just metabolism. Just um, metabolism. Yeah. And it's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Energy pathways, energy yeah. providing pathways. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we've got a couple series on the podcast. So the Watts doc series episodes number 29 through currently 35, um, are all looking at various aspects of these metabolic systems. And, you know, kind of, um, kind of trying to touch on and clarify a lot of the misunderstandings that I tend to see, which is not to say that anybody listening has these misunderstandings, but I did at some point have every one of them. And, uh, I, I hope that, um, you know, through listening to the podcast, everybody gets it all cleared up a little bit, even people who have to listen (laughs) a couple of times, which, um, when I listen to a technical podcast, I have to do the same thing. So, um, what was the question again? <laughs> so basically, give us a sneak peek, perhaps, of what oh, is yeah. to come on the oh, like so- these these future metabolism um, episodes. But in particular, just like why why is this important when we're doing base training? And it's kind of like um, you know what's going on in the body, and, and why do we need to even kind of know this? Because some people are going to be like, I'm going to fast forward and get through this, but like you could just <laughs> yeah. give them the quick selling points. Sure. So. Um- when we are doing this kind of thing, we're actually developing what we need for long-term, excuse me, uh, improvements of even higher power output levels. So it's setting the stage for what is to come. Yeah. Um, like Tim Cusick has said, uh, this is the time when you're training to train. Yeah. Um, just to steal a phrase from the master. <laughs> so, um, steal away. so one of the things that we're doing is we are developing mitochondrial density as we ride and train more. Um, and this is a big deal because when we do this low intensity training, we get a lot of aerobic stimulus and we can actually improve our mitochondrial density, uh, from riding a lot more than we currently do. And we can also improve things that limit, um, fat use, which we, another podcast episode on that, which I think is mm-hmm. episode Watsock 30 or 31. Um, basically the transport of fat to go from adipose tissue through the adipose cell lining, uh, cell wall into the bloodstream and then get transported all the way over to the muscles and then brought in through the, you know, you've got another wall to go through another wall, another, then you go into the mitochondria. So you've got a couple more cell walls to go through. Um, and this all takes time and having more transport mechanisms and mitochondria to actually use fat is pretty much what's going to improve our ability to burn fat over the long term, which, you know, traditionally is good, as you might expect, um, to spare glycogen when we get to the higher intensities, yada, 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 the whole thing. But we're also, when we do low intensity base training, we're also improving, um, uh, capillarity of muscles. The more muscle, uh, the more capillaries we have around each individual muscle fiber, the more oxygen can freely diffuse into the muscle fiber and be used, which is a big limiter 
uh, when it comes to things like VO2 max or even FTP. Um, and so this kind of angiogenesis takes place over, you know, weeks and months of, uh, low intensity training. And we'll see this kind of thing, um, uh, oh, there's also one more thing, which is um, we typically will improve uh, blood volumes, uh, plasma volume mm-hmm. and um, hematocrit uh, or red cell, uh, you know, however you want to measure it as hematocrit t- takes a hit at first and then it comes back up. Right. Um, and so uh, actually it's that that provides the fastest and most potent early training phase stimulus is increasing our blood volume, which increases heart stroke volume, which increases VO2 max. And so we actually get some really good adaptations just by riding nice and easy, especially after we've had a couple weeks on the couch. So I hope, <laughs> I hope that's not too, never mind, that's, that's way too much, but <laughs> maybe you could summarize it. Yeah. I was going to say, so, you know, don't, don't worry. Oxygen is still important. Uh, to bring into the system. And by this low to say medium intensity training that we're referring to as base training sets the stage to bring more of that in and sets the stage for higher performance to eventually occur. That's really yeah, what we're talking sure. about here. Yeah. And so it'll, it'll, it'll work on our limiters um, in a way that we can't by doing all high intensity training. Cause if we did high intensity training all the time, well, there's obviously a plateau that happens at some point um, with that uh, stimulus pathway, um, and also, you know, th- it's just tiring. You know, that's why you don't. That's why you don't see anybody in the world tour doing high intensity intervals three times a week for the entire year. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So to, to kind of talk about, um, let, let's just say elites all the way down to novices. Um, would you say so? Everybody still does base training, correct? I would say so. But and I don't I don't know. I don't well, maybe not everybody. <laughs> well, I'd say true. pretty reasonably most people, yes. Yeah. Okay. So well, let's let's put it this way. Should everybody do base training? Should there be a base in everybody's part of training, in your opinion? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's kind of where I'm going. All right. And and just to kind of like fast forward a little bit on, on the novice on the novice athlete, someone just kind of starting, um, a lot of these changes are happening in the blood, like like you talked about. Yeah. Um, with a more experienced athlete, th- that's when you get into stroke volume, some, some of the cardiovascular outputs, but also some peripheral, some, some muscular, some, some of that capillarity that you're talking about. And then in the elite athlete, um, just talk about that. Cause that is an area of your expertise. And, and when I say elite athlete, we're talking about someone who's trained a ton there, let's just say they have reached or near reached their genetic max. Um, what is going on during a base phase for an elite athlete? Why are they coming back to it? Even though that I've got you know, hours and hours and kilometers built up in, in the system. Yeah. You know, cause usually when you're looking at a pro who's at their genetic max, what we're looking at really is their peak VO two max is it's just topped out. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's all you get. Um, and you can increase it a little bit if you focus on that training, but you're going to lose some of the endurance and some of the FTP. So you can make somebody pursue, do a pursuit better, but they're going to suffer in the time trial. So, you know, that's, that's, Mm -hmm. uh, one of those, you know, very minor details to think about with super elites. Um, but you know, what happens when elite athletes train who are pretty much at their, you know, genetic max most of the year, um, they're, you know, after they get these early season, um, uh, hematologic, uh, improvements in, you know, 
blood volume and stroke volume and all that, pretty much what we're looking at is an improvement of endurance. And so most of this is going to be a uh, muscular um, metabolic kind of adaptation. So we're going to see uh, more mitochondrial density. We're going to see more uh, fat transporters and lactate transporters, and we're going to see better buffering capacity. And we're going to see all that kind of stuff. Because typically, um, you know, when you look at uh, a very elite pros view to max through the season, it'll come back up after base training, and then it'll like tap out, but they're still getting more fit as we see as people race into the season, especially looking at like the tour and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so as they get there, the the endurance improves greatly, Um, but the VO2 max, not so much. And when we're looking at developing athletes who are, you know, novices or intermediate who are looking to be as good as they can get in, you know, in the VO2 max region anyway, um, it's, you know, we're doing everything. But when you're looking at the super elites, you know, maybe they don't have to do so much VO2 max training, for instance. So, um, you know, there's a, does that kind of answer the question? I'm yeah, not, not yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That summarizes it um, quite well because I think that um, they not only are there, uh, say, races longer, but the time it takes to uh, keep a genetic um, max right um, takes a lot more of this training, and they already have kind of the plumbing, <laughs> genetically speaking, <laughs> um, that requires that. So, yeah, I think that answers it um, very well. Um, yeah. As we're still kind of in this like why base training? I'm going to switch to nutrition just for a a couple minutes here. We don't have to get too deep in the weeds on it, but um, I'm curious, do you change or manipulate diet nutrition for your athletes during this time period at all? Um, You know, typically no. Um, In a couple rare occasions we might. So, um, you know, we'll obviously manipulate uh, things like this, if somebody wants to lose weight, uh, that's a big one. Uh, and that would probably be the most common reason that we manipulate nutrition. Um, and that is really just inducing an energy deficit and trying not to lose so much muscle mass. Um, but you know, when it comes to things like, uh, like I, for instance, I never assign fasted rides ever, 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 ever. If somebody gets up Agreed. at 5 AM and they have like an hour, super easy recovery ride at 80 Watts. Cool. All right. You can do that fast. That's going to be fine. Um, pretty much anything <laughs> over that you're yeah, really going to want to eat something. Yeah. Um, rarely we will look at doing, um, low carb, high fat rides. Um, and this is the most important thing. And one of the hardest things to do with this kind of thing, which is why I do it so rarely is because, uh, it increases the RPE a lot and it's actually really hard to maintain an isocaloric deficit or uh, not deficit, sorry, <laughs> isocaloric uh, diet mm-hmm. when you are eating a very large amount of proteins and fats and not so much in the carbohydrates. Um, and this kind of diet manipulation we'll look at for people who are typically a little more time crunched um, and want to do it. Um, Cause you know, if we um, lo- low glycogen stores basically have um, impacts in the AMPK and MAPK uh, adaptive pathways pointing at PGC1 alpha. However, the literature here is kind of equivocal. Some people find that there are good adaptations and some people don't. Um, Experientially, I find in the athletes who like to do this kind of thing, we can knock out another five or 10% adaptation, but you know, it's not going to be a silver bullet. It's nothing like, it's nothing like going from, um, you know, 
doing 10 hours a week to 20, which is much, much more bang for your buck in terms of adaptation. Yeah. So what you're saying is by, by doing some low carb uh, time periods, there's going to be this extra stress on the athlete that will elicit some of these adaptations that could be fought out through training done, but it's a different way to kind of like dial up one thing to add in more stress to get a result. Yeah. Yeah. And any of these kinds of manipulations, um, are going to be, uh, I would say they have a 70% failure rate (laughs) in most athletes Mm -hmm. in terms of actually being able to follow the protocol. So, um, so they're difficult. And, you know, also I think a lot of people, uh, or a lot of maybe, maybe not a lot of people, um, I don't think a lot of people have thought about this so much, but I think a lot of, uh, scientists and coaches have looked at, can you get better at burning fat by burning more fat? Um, and that's what, you know, some of these kinds of things will do, because if you are doing low carb rides, you don't really have a choice, but to burn more fat. Cause first of all, you're eating a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and also your body just sort of, um, the hormonal regulation just tilts you that way. Um, and, uh, if anybody's curious about that kind of thing, listen to my last Watchdog podcast, number 35 on fat max fallacies, which looks at, um, why you don't actually get more adaptations by just burning more fat in and of itself. So you're saying that I can't just sit on the couch and drink olive oil and get all the results, man, I wit, man, <laughs> I wouldn't even want to drink straight all. Okay. Maybe you put a little parm in it, some red pepper <laughs> with some bread. Okay. Oh no, that's a piece of the point. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just, <laughs> just an animal over here drinking raw pure yeah. olive oil. Yeah. No, but it's it's kind of like parallel to when somebody's yeah. got, you know, like, you know, if you're watching F1 or you're watching a movie and your heart rate hits like, you know, 150, it's like, do I get TSS for this? It's like, no, your cadence was zero. So <laughs> so you don't. Um Yeah. You still gotta do the work, in other words. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um so but yeah, if, if anybody wants to go a little deeper on the it's a manipulation of diet as it refers to um, low carb, high fat. Uh, Coley does have actually a few episodes like that. Go deep in those. It's pretty good. But in short, say for an endurance athlete, in my opinion, and, and Coley can correct me if I'm wrong, but like living the keto lifestyle and doing low carb long term, probably not the best way to go. Yeah, not really. Um, For anything, really. Yeah, I mean, I've I've tried it myself. I was like, man, I'm I got to lose this last ten pounds, and I so I started eating a lot of omelets with cheese and getting on the bike and just feeling horrible. Um, and I I gave it a good month, month and a half before I had to stop because um, it it was completely unsustainable, especially with high intensity stuff. And um, yeah. uh, one of our podcast episodes, I forget which one. Uh, something keto was in the title. <laughs> the only episode episode yeah. with keto in the title that, that looks at, uh, two really excellent studies from Louise Burke, uh, who did, um, great, uh, stuff on elite race walkers because not only did it mm-hmm. look at uh, molecular study. pathways, but it looked at, um, you know, actual performance. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, um, you know, if you really want to see if something works or not, you got to put it through the meat grinder of the athlete. You've got a stuff adaptation or stimulus in one side. Uh, well, th- then you get the adaptation, hopefully, and then you see what kind of performance comes out in the other. Yeah. And, and just, I was, um, I attended a we- or, uh, virtual conference and Keith Barr, who's actually a pretty big fan of keto diet, um, was speaking to us endurance folk, coaches, athletes, team directors, all this kind of stuff. And in his takeaway was like, it, it is for some people, but it's probably for like 
the the team directors and coaches that are sitting in a car for seven hours, not the <laughs> athlete. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like basically, if you want to go fast, if you want to like you know train hard and, and do something beyond zone two, like um, keto probably not best. But like if if you there's and he goes into some benefits and all this kind of stuff. I won't I won't beat this anymore. But like mm-hmm. um, in general, if if you've got performance goals, um, you need you need carbohydrate. So. Um, all right, let's move into some of the best practices or like how to actually do this. Cause some, some people are really enjoying us or the nerd alert hour. Some people are like, all right, tell me what to do. Um, all right. So (laughs) Coley, um, how do we do base training? Like give us a, say an example week, um, of, of a training scenario for maybe a master's level athlete and kind of give us the goal of that week. And you can steal um, anything from Tim Cusick again. If you <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, Tim Cusick's, uh, his um, one or two webinars ago um, on training load. Uh, so look for something from like November, December, 2021. That was last year, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> God, it's already new year. Um, yeah. So look, look for one of those. And in that, he actually says pretty much what I've experienced and Tim being a, uh, a pretty well-trained master athlete himself you know, for masters, especially, you really want to look at the training history because mm-hmm. you might think as people get older, they can do less, but people like Tim and some of the clients that we have at empirical cycling, they're in their sixties and they're still doing 20, 25 hour weeks. And so when it comes to looking at stuff like that, it's like, um, you know, you can actually still find improvements in older athletes and you can actually, um, uh, or as, as Tim stole from Andy Coggin in that very webinar, he said, uh, um, the best predictor of performance is performance itself. Yep. And if we're even thinking about, uh, you know, and, and if we want to go one, uh, you know, pity, uh, axiom from Andy further, um, you know, training is testing and testing is training and blah, blah, blah. So we can, we can wrap all this up to say that, um, training is performance. And so if you're going to look at what can somebody handle in training, you look at what they, what they have done and try to still build on that a little bit. So, um, yep. that's yep. what I would say for, uh, for a master's, but if we're looking at something like a novice athlete, um, my biggest priority is to keep it fun, um, and look at the basic skills. Like, can you hold a wheel? Uh, can you eat on the bike? Can you ride with no hands? Can you take a jacket off without getting it tangled in your rear wheel? Um, and having fun, you know, just learning to, you know, or continuing to love to ride the bike. And, you know, uh, I think that's, and, and then on the way we can, um, we can learn to train or that, that athlete can learn to train, um, instead of having it, you know, super focused from day one, which I think even a lot of novice athletes want, um, you know, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to go that route. Yeah. And I think the reason, you know, like keeping it fun and also like learning how to train for a novice athletes, novice athlete, we're talking like, you know, you're curious about getting into riding. Maybe you, you know, the Peloton is no longer <laughs> serving you and you want to get out there and do some of these group rides or ride with your friends that you, that, and, and so you're getting in, you know, year one, two, maybe even three and keeping it fun because, and then learning how to do this while not getting too crazy is because for this sport, um, you, you know, uh, long-term prevails, like some of these chronic adaptations that we're talking about, um, you will get good at year four at year eight, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's where, to your point for the master's level athlete, you know, we're still, you know, some athletes are still doing, you know, 20 hour weeks if they have the time and all this kind of stuff. And, and the, the, 
the bike is very forgiving in that regard versus say something like running, um, <laughs> yeah. that beats you up more where you can do sure. that volume. Right. And, and so that's why I kind of give some of those examples. The elite athlete, obviously, is, it, as we talked about, it's doing quite a bit of volume, um, for their job, mind you. Um, and they, they've kind of gone through that experience. And so, um, for specifics, uh, cause Tim's been on this ep- or this, um, podcast several times, but episode number 46 goes into great detail about, um, about some of those aspects that we're talking, but for Coley, say, just take it, uh, one example or even yourself, um, if, if you want to, but say a, a master's level athlete right now in January, maybe they're cranking up for a national championship or something. Are you like calling that. me old? <laughs> hey man. I masters. I, I, masters. I'm a. I'm actually a baby masters. Yeah, baby masters. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I saw some gray in that in that little scruff there. But yeah, no, you too. got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you you pick an athlete of a masters genre, if you will. Uh, what, what do you have them doing right now? Um, you know, it's pretty much the same as I would have any kind of um, athlete of their training age doing. You know, if they've been training for 20 years, um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll be training them like they are an experienced athlete. If they're, they've been training for two years or five years, then we've got some very different goals. Uh, and, uh, especially a lot of people at that level are somewhere between, um, you know, full-time parents, full-time job, and they've only got 10 hours a week to train or they're retired and they've got some extra income and they can just really go for it. And so in which case, you know, these people are going to be doing very different things. So obviously, um, I'm sure as you do in your coaching, uh, it's all very individual based. Yeah. And I kind of, I mean, not, not to pull supreme trickery, but that's a great (laughs) answer because it really, it really depends. And I think when people, especially when you're talking to people like Coley and I, like we always go into training history first before we give a great answer. So queuing up in without giving like a, a five minute detail example of who this athlete could be. I like Coley's answer because he's, it's like, Ooh, that's a general, you know, I'm going to give a general answer because broad base is not the greatest. And that's kind of how we operate. Um, and I would say, uh, again, go episode number 46 from train right podcast, listen to some, some of Coley's in the end, we're looking at individualizing training approaches because that is what prevails, especially if you're beyond novice type of athlete. Yeah. Well, and that even goes for elite athletes too, because, sure. um, I coach professional athletes right now. Uh, I have one particular client who he can easily ride 25 to 30 hours a week, uh, for most of the year. And he's, he's great. Um, and I have other professional athletes who are in the, you know, 15 to 20 hours a week. And if they go a little beyond that, then it starts to be a little too much for them. And so even then there's still a very large individual range on what somebody can, uh, maintain. And we're always looking at, you know, getting them a little bit more, a little bit more, but you know, once you're doing 25, 30 hours a week, it's like, all right, we're going to get some diminishing returns real fast. after this. For sure. For sure. I, I like to say, and I've said, I think on this podcast before, rarely is it the training that is the problem when the, say when there is a problem. Um, and generally speaking, more volume, the better. And then you have to have some type of intellectual weave of intensities, but like in general, it comes down to the time constraints of an athlete and the other stressors that are going on. And that, that's what goes into how to get the most performance out of an athlete, um, which we're talking about here. So 
I'd say, you, you know, again, in ter- if someone's listening to this and they want an exact volume for a week or a month or whatever, probably not going to get it. So out of these two coaches, <laughs> all right. Um, however, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, not sorry. Um, but one of the things that I think we can talk about in terms of like, how you do base training is looking at maybe some of the strengths and weaknesses and how to shore up and make sure that there's no weak, uh, weak link in a chain. So Coley question to you, if you've got an athlete with a weakness, is this a time to address that weakness? And, and how would you do that in a base training? You know, it depends on what the weakness is and what the lim- the physiologic limiters are. Mm-hmm. Um, so if somebody's weakness is like one minute power or a sprint and they really want to improve it, excuse me, um, doing a lot of one minute intervals it, in this period during base training is probably not the way to go. Because, um, you know, I there's more than one paper and more than one coach was seen that uh, as you do these kinds of intervals, you know, just doing more is not necessarily going to yield the adaptation that they will get better. Um, like I've seen a lot of people pop a one minute best after doing nothing but FTP training. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot more complicated, but you know, if we want to look at like a physiologic limiter for P max or one minute power, like FRC or anaerobic capacity type stuff, uh, we're going to look at muscle mass, like how much force can you produce? Cause muscle mass, um, is going to be very good for glycogen storage. You get more per uh, unit muscle, um, and you are going to have better force production. So this is going to improve your big limiters here. And so if we're looking at uh, improvements of the aerobic nature, then, you know, you're doing aerobic training in general. And so, um, yeah. so you don't, you're already working on your weakness. Yeah, no, completely agree there. And I, I have made, um, I've done some of that anaerobic training in a base period, I'd say with very mixed results and, and, and made the mistake in that regard. And I think that when you're looking at other, uh, say if there is a weakness, like a neuromuscular power type, it is generally better. I think to go off the bike, create more muscle mass for force generation in order to do that now, like this time period, January, February, all this kind of stuff generally is not the best to do that on the bike. I'd, I'd say based in my experience thus far. Um, and so completely agree with, with Coley on that. Um, I would say if it is, if the weakness also has like a technical nature to it, meaning like a, like a sprint form, like they just can't sprint the very uncoordinated and stuff. I'll still throw in some 20 second sprints to keep some of that high end and get some of that, um, that form down so that this, um, kind of, I hate the term muscle memory, but people (laughs) relate to it, but like you start to get that so that you, um, learn how to move and how to coordinate on your bike over time. And it's not going to hurt your training to do a few sprints here and there and some anaerobic stuff. Well, you can call it, you can call it, um, uh, motor, uh, patterning, I guess. Exactly. Um, Neuromuscular patterning. Yes. It's the same thing as like when you get into the gym and you haven't squatted for a couple months and you Mm -hmm. do your first couple squats and it's really rusty. You're a little off balance. Like you round your back a little bit or you get some butt wink or something like that. But if you start, you know, even if you're just doing light loads, if you're just squatting for, you know, once or twice a week for a couple weeks, you know, that technique gets better. And the same thing happens with sprinting. And, you know, I would say that, you know, in mountain biking and, you know, more, uh, you know, cyclocross even or downhill or enduro you're going to want to um you know take your time doing some uh skills work in the off season especially too just to you know first of all to not 
not be rusty when it, when it comes time to needing to do an erase. And second, because, you know, it's low intensity, you're going to be kind of fresh uh, for the most part. And so you can actually spend a lot more mental energy on things like balance or like, you know, line choices and, you know, maybe learning to juggle while you're standing on a BOSU ball. Hey, why not? Exactly. No, I mean, that's, that's a great example. I mean, I've been working with, um, uh, a rider from, uh, EF Tipco and she's, she's looking to launch over to Europe and, and what we're doing right now is all skill based, getting comfortable in group ride and has some like high end punchy stuff to it, but it's like, you know, bumping elbows and doing some high stress stuff, but it's low intensity right now. And that's setting her up for, for the long term. So yeah, the base in, and that goes into like a weakness, right? And that's why I bring it up. Yeah. This base time period is a great time because training intensity is low to add in some of these other stressors that will shore up weakness. That's kind of my main point. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. So moving on here, uh, just to transition and that's a good transition is when do you know to move on from base training to whatever level of training comes next, Coley? What are you looking for uh, in an athlete? You know, most of the time, the periodization kind of decides itself. Um, you know, if we look at the end of an athlete's race season and the start of the next race season, we've only got a couple months. So I want to see some time off the bike. I want to see some, you know, recuperation and the whole everything that everybody likes to do is like, you know, sitting on the couch and eating apples and cheese and watching movies and, you know, in the office or whatever you're going to do. I um, eat chips and salsa and sit on the couch. It's oh, the same. Love yeah. That. yeah. I order tacos from across the street. Perfect. <laughs> um, so after you do that and you start getting back into it, um, you know, you can kind of take your goal race and move backwards from it. Or like the start of your race season, if you've got a two peak season and you want to be in shape in June, you're going to want to really start hitting the stuff kind of hard in like March. And so if you're done in November, you've only got, you know, a, a month off and then you've got, you know, two months to like hit the gym and get in some long rides and then, you know, it's time to go. Um, and if that's not where you're at, if you've got like one race a year and the rest of your year is just kind of open, um, you know, you can um, look at things like, uh, well, motivation is a big one. You're just bored of long endurance rides. That's fine too. Um, right, right. You can move on a little bit as long as you're not going overboard with stuff. Um, you know, you can kind of periodize it how you want. So if you're looking for like a physiologic metric, um, you know, I think Tim in one of his webinars had said things like if you if you're watching, you know, your MFTP go up or your TTE go out or whatever metric you're looking at, or maybe you're tracking your uh, efficiency factor, your EF, when everything's kind of starts to plateau, that's a good time to move on. And if you start to plateau pretty quick because you don't have a lot of time, let's say you start with four hours a week and you get up to 10 hours a week, um, you know, once you're riding 10 hours a week all the time, there's not going to be much more adaptation that you're going to get from riding 10 hours a week because your body needs a little bit more. It's already used to this. So um, then it might be time to move on too. So there's not a great answer. Um, and I we actually have at Empirical Cycling uh, one or two things, uh, little trade secrets that we use. Um, you know, I would, I would share them, but you know, people are paying us and we don't want to, <laughs> why else would they pay us if we don't have one or two things that we've got? Uh, and this is one of those things that we have that kind of tells us, um, when to move on or not that, um, I unfortunately cannot share. Yeah, no, it, that's fair. And I think it's also a great answer, um, to that because I think, I think as a coach, I mean, when you do this for years and years, there's, there's like some, some art to it of knowing when this athlete needs to move on and call it a trade secret if you wish or not. I think as I, 
you know, working with some of the WKO five future stuff and also listening to, um, that aspect from Tim, I, I have gone back and looked at when I changed, why did I change at what period? And I would say that, yeah, some of these metrics that we're looking at do start to plateau and then you make it and then you change intensity and then you keep on building up. I think some of that is a little, um, kind of either innate and kind of known in a good coach's brain, um, or, as you said, it has worked out, fine, you know, fine with the periodization because you need to kind of uh, keep on moving toward that race time period or, or a progressive overload, if you will, uh, to get ready for that race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think for self-coached athletes, if if you are a little confused about this, start working out an annual plan. Do the periodization yourself, and you'll and you'll realize what Coley just talked about. It's like, yeah, it kind of takes care of itself if you get organized ahead of time and say, okay, this is when I take a break. This is when I build base. And then you start to look at when you, when you need to move on. And it's, it's very distinct from a pattern, from a a planning standpoint. Yep. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure you've had the same difficulties I've had working with professional athletes where their race season ends in November and they've got to be in shape in February. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, There's no option, right? I see the look on your face. It's, uh, yeah, (laughs) exactly. And then they get sick. Um, yes. <laughs> anyway, dealing with that right now. Um, so yeah, I, I do think again, maybe no hard and fast answer in terms of when it's time to move on, but I think it's, you know, it's a combination of data. It's a combination, say of science and a combination of art. Uh, you need to put work in, you need to do your base training. And at some point, if depending on the data you're looking at, um, things will start to plateau. I think you can feel it. I think you see it in your data, but if you do get organized, there's also this time period where it's just like, well, no matter how good or poor this base went uh, shifting up from zone two to three or three to four, that needs to occur to keep you on your plan. Yeah. And some people actually just, you know, respond better to, to slightly higher intensities, Bingo. Um, yep. you know, spread a little more throughout the year. So, um, you know, typically I, I'm sure you've seen in, uh, professional athletes, you need to really cluster that, um, that stimulus into a very short time period to get them to really overload and, you know, get to the next level that they are capable of. But, you know, for an average athlete, uh, if they respond to higher intensity, just a little bit, um, you know, then you want to make sure you spread it out and give them plenty of recovery, that whole yep. kind of typical stuff. Yes. Yes. That's it. Um, yeah, that's it. I, I'm hesitating right now because I'm like, gosh, there's just like so more. And we talked about this even off before. It's like, oh, should I say this? And should I say <laughs> But, you know, Coley, um, we're going to do another episode together talking about, because this is, uh, say, the base, right? This yep. is base um, training and where a lot of your expertise lies, well, not only in coaching, but some of this neuromuscular power in, in, in high-end stuff. Um we're going to get you back for developing neuromuscular and PMAX uh, power. And you'll learn what that actually means as we go. And it's going to, it's going to be kind of that yin and yang to a series that I, that I had of the how to series for um, developing threshold VO2 max and anaerobic capacity. So um, 
bringing in Coley, somebody who's smarter than I to talk about this base, but also the, the higher end of the near muscular power come back for that. Um, but I'd say, uh, we'll, we'll wait to talk about some of the stuff that I want to for that episode. And, and we'll just, uh, we'll take this thing home with a little bit of summary right now, because I know, you know, our athletes who, who listen, they're, they're addicted to increasing their performance. And I, and I do think that they learned a lot today in terms of like how to build their base, why they should build their base and, 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 you know, got some nuggets of how to look at the stuff they're reading a little bit differently and maybe go a little bit deeper, say into your podcast or, or into human physiology and learn like, Oh, wow, that's why that doesn't work the way I thought it did. So, um, (laughs) you, you know, we learned a lot today, but if you could summarize kind of just in like one phrase or kind of one thought, uh, what would you tell our listeners that they should take away from this episode? Um, you know, do what's enjoyable to you. Hmm. Chips and salsa. Chips and salsa. <laughs> Sorry. I talk about that too much, but yeah, do what's enjoyable on the bike. You're talking. Yeah. Um, yeah, do what's enjoyable. And, um, you know, it's, it's less about like a specific workout and it's more about the sum total of what you do. Um, cause, uh, you know, this is kind of my definition of base training. Like for instance, is it's, it's not like what you do before you start to train harder. It's everything you do that leads to adaptations down the road. And, you know, what I found in coaching is that, you know, if we're really looking at eking out that extra, like one to a couple percent, um, then yeah, we'll look at, okay, this workout needs to be here. This workout needs to be here. We need to do it like this. We need to do it like this. But for the most part, just make sure that you're not digging too far into the weeds and you're not driving yourself crazy with data. Um, and that you're, you know, kind of being a little critical and a little self-doubting of your own methodology, which I am extremely of my own. Um, and that'll get you moving forward and kind of, um, you know, uh, I actually, I think you had touched on this earlier. I meant to say something about it, but just make sure that you're recovering really well. Yeah. Um, and cause a lot of, uh, a lot of what happens, you know, from novices to, you know, intermediate to more advanced uh, local elites to world tour elites. Um, a lot of what happens when you start to hit your head against the wall, the answer is usually not more training. It's usually more recovery. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's never in it, it. The reason why I hesitate right now is, is because as a coach, I, I think it's an easy out to say it's never the training, but I think it's, it's not the easy out. It's actually the hard aspect of it for a coach because sure I can prescribe 30 hours and say, if you don't do it, well, you're not tough enough, right? Go, go <laughs> yeah. good, right? It's not the training's fault. It's your fault, right? <laughs> yeah, That's what that could mean, but it's not yeah. because a good coach will say, well, okay, well, okay. Why are you tired? Why did you get sick? Okay. What's going on? Relational life, career life, yeah. your kids, you know, why didn't you sleep? All this kind of stuff, or you didn't sleep. And you're, you're looking at all these say data points and comments and communication in order to, to make sure this athlete is being healthy and doing the things that they need to do to achieve their goals. Right. And so I think it makes it more challenging that it's not the training. If it was the training, I don't know, we wouldn't be having conversations like this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And um, especially with cyclists and endurance athletes who are typically extremely self-motivated right. and, you know, Kyle, my podcast co-host and I, we usually rag on this, uh, probably one out of every four or five episodes, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, that, you know, if you just work harder, you'll get faster. And that's, you know, so if 
if one workout a week is good, one hard workout, two week, hard workouts a week is better. Three is even better. Six is awesome. And if you can get in 12, oh my God, you're going to be so fast. It, it doesn't work like that. And a lot right. of our jobs as coaches is not to crack the whip, uh, but it's to pull the leash just to say, hey, slow down. Like you're really stressed out right now. I think taking the next two or three weeks easy until you get through this rough patch is going to be better for you than if we just try to push because whoops. Um, cause Push then on. you're going to get overtrained. You're going to get sick. You're going to, you're going to quit. Um, and you know, and it's not, it's not only just that we don't want to lose a client it's that, you know, we don't want to do that to a person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and as it pertains to base training, just kind of like circle this thing, you know, back is, is when it comes to base, because it is, you know, it's lower intensity and generally less glamorous it still needs to get done. And the best way to do it is just to get it done without overthinking about the data, the metrics about, man, who's doing more than me right now. It's like, no, just, just yeah. do your base training. If you have a coach communicate with them during the base training, because that's still important, even though you don't have all the fancy intervals and all this kind of stuff. Um, and if you're self-coached, you know, whether you get outside or stay inside, you know, take Coley's advice of like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Stay in zone yeah. two, get it done. Well, I, I think a lot of our, you know, recovery admonitions here are mostly focused at people who are really time crunched and don't mm -hmm. have much choice but to do higher intensity stuff for a base. Like you hit your six, eight hours and you start doing sweet spot work already. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can overdo sweet spot work for sure. And so that's, I think that's kind of what we're thinking of when we say stuff like this. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. So with that said, I, I'll leave it by saying, keep learning, especially if, if, if some of this stuff in the episode is like, oh, I didn't get my full answer. It's like, great. We just set you up for more learning. So go listen to Coley's podcast, um, empirical cycling. Um, you can find it on Apple, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places, right? Coley. And on the website, we got some show notes for episodes where we have stuff to refer to. Um, a, lot, a lot of papers linked and stuff like that. Most of them are actually open text. I try to get those when I can. Yeah, it's real good too, especially if you're super nerdy or if you're like, learn, you want to know where the omega-3 or omega-6 bonds happen. <laughs> in a, in a, you're like, wait, I can't visualize that while I'm on the trainer, like go to his website. Cause he, he does do a very good job better than I do about some of the show notes and stuff. But, uh, also you're on Instagram, Facebook, are you on Twitter as well? Um, I'm on Facebook. I don't really touch Facebook these days anymore. Just, yeah. just happened that way. But I think yeah. a lot of, well, WKO five group, uh, user group is, uh, pretty much the only reason I'm still on Facebook. Same. Yeah. Um, Instagram at empirical cycling, uh, Twitter, uh, type underscore I, I X, uh, I barely cool. use Twitter except to stalk people. Um, so, um, you know, that's where to find me and, uh, reach out, say hi. Type I, 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 X. I like it. I like I it. And, those, and for those who don't understand, just, just, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that next episode. Yeah. Send, send Coley a message, send, send him a DM, ask him what it means. Um, and you'll learn more about it. So Coley Moore, uh, thank you so much for taking time today out, out of your, your coaching day and probably had to flick a few messages from athletes to, to talk to us on the train, right podcast, but we super appreciate it. Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to the next one. All right. We'll stay warm up in, uh, up in Vermont. All right. Well, you stay warm down <laughs> in mid Atlantic. <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on the train, right podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainright.com forward slash podcast, where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. 
Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart, train right.